The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And let's go ahead and look to James chapter 4. This book is uh, five chapters, just a short letter that James wrote 2,000 years ago. James was one of the key leaders in the early church in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended into heaven. James was not one of the 12 apostles, but he became like an apostle, an authoritative figure in the early church, right alongside Peter the apostle and John the apostle. And James was actually a half-brother of Jesus, literally. Uh, So Jesus was born, I mean, James was uh, born of Mary, just like Jesus was. But he was a half-brother and came to know Jesus personally, putting his faith in him as Savior and Lord after Jesus rose again from the dead and then rose to leadership in the Jerusalem church. And James is now writing about 15 years later after Jesus ascended into heaven to believers scattered abroad all throughout and outside of the Palestine area. Many of these people he probably mingled with and rubbed shoulders with and maybe even pastored at one time when they were down located in Jerusalem temporarily. 15, 20 years has gone by now and James is getting word uh, about how the saints are doing in these particular churches. They are Jewish believers. And there's some good things that he heard, and then there's also some bad things that he heard about what was going on. They were having struggles in their churches and in their uh, Christian walk on a personal level and also on a corporate level. Churches have problems. I don't know if you knew that. Churches have problems. That's why, this, that's why he wrote this letter. Uh, he's trying to solve problems with this letter, James chapter 5. So it's a realistic picture of what the church is like and what people are like. People have problems. Churches have problems because people are sinners. And God has solutions, God has answers, and that's what this is. This is a divinely inspired letter written by James as he was guided by the Holy Spirit of God to address these believers in their personal life and their corporate public worship life in the local churches to address and solve their problems the way God asked them to. Churches have problems. That surprises some people when they find out that churches have problems. Uh, I just want to, you don't need to turn there, I want to read this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in your New Testament, 13. All 13 were written by Paul to either individual Christians, pastors, or local churches to solve their problems because Paul knew churches have problems. Why do churches have problems? Because people have problems and people are in churches and they mess it all up. So every one of Paul's 13 letters was written, not just a friendly, how you doing? It was to address a problem. Man, your church is struggling. Your church is messed up. I hear bad things. So he had to write to address problems. God's word. That's why I love the Bible. It is realistic about people. Uh, so here in 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's longer letters or epistles that he wrote to the church in Corinth, a church that Paul pastored, he founded it. He was there for over three years. He was in touch on an ongoing basis. He knew these people. He left for a while and then he heard, man, they're messed up. <laughs> i got to write them a letter, straighten things out. And so at the beginning of his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, he said, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, fellow Christians, by Chloe's people. That was probably one of the houses where they had church in Corinth. I have been informed that there are quarrels among you. There's infighting going on in the church at Corinth where I used to pastor. People aren't getting along. There's attitudes. There's pride. There's selfishness. There are schisms. There are divisions. 
And it's creating further problems. He goes on for another 15 chapters to solve that problem. So churches have problems. Uh, why, why do I keep saying that? Well, because that's where we are in James. Go to James chapter 4. And I said, introduced it last week, actually a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're now reaching the apex of James's little letter that's only five chapters long. And it climaxes in the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is the main problem. They had a lot of problems that he was trying to fix, but the biggest problem was these Christians were not getting along. They were fighting and arguing and quarreling and being self-centered and being divisive and having judgmental attitudes towards one another. But they were really Christians. These were real churches. So Christians really struggle with these things. And so James is a realist as a pastor, and so he's trying to help them out, reminding them, wow, you can't be living like this. This is ungodly. You're, just, you're, acting, you're no different from an unbeliever when you act this way. So if you're really a Christian, you've got to check your attitude, fix the problem. And so that's where we are. We're right in the middle of this conflict resolution by James. James chapter 4, the entire chapter. James as a pastor and actually kind of like a prophet, a fiery prophet because of the terminology he uses. For the first three chapters, he's been like a pastoral with a pastoral heart and encouraging. And he keeps using that phrase, my brethren, my brethren. That's showing a sign of affection and intimacy. I love you. We are fellow believers. Uh, let me remind you of this and the blessings of God. So he's been pastoral. But in chapter 4, he turns into prophet mode. Fiery Old Testament prophet mode. And I don't know if you've read much of the Old Testament prophets, but they could be pretty fiery. And that's what he does because now he is specific. He's kind of addressing generalities and general truths of the Christian life, but now he gets real specific. He hones in with a laser on their biggest problem. And that's why he gets real specific, real fiery, real passionate, real emotional, yet it is inspired by God. So it comes from God is authoritative and binding his message. So follow along as I read uh, verses 1 through 10 as James, the pastor and the prophet, now speaking to God's people who were really struggling in terms of getting along in the churches. And he says, what is the source of quarrels and or literally wars? That's the word wars, but he's speaking about they're fighting with each other. Like little kids over a cookie. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures or your hedonism that wages war in your members? You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And those of you who ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures or your hedonism. Verse 4, you adulteresses. Spiritual adulteresses we noticed last week. Not literal adultery. You adulterous, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? God jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But God, has, but God gives a greater grace. Therefore, the Scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he's being a fiery prophet here, and he says some pretty harsh things to kind of startle them and shock them into reality and shock them into repentance. That's what he's doing. But it's with truth. Strong accusation. You commit murder. In other words, you're acting out of hatred. That's what he meant. But he ends with the good news at the end of verse 6. 
It says, yeah, you've been very sinful, but you can't out-sin God's grace when you're a believer and a child of God. And so as a result, God gives greater grace for when we are being sinful. And so he reminds them from Scripture in the Old Testament that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to forgive, to soften our hearts, and to help us turn back to Him. So he's giving hope. And so now we're going to look at verses 7 to 10, the passage we want to look at today. And this is the same discussion, same context. And in light of verse 6, where he said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Wow. But again, he ends on good news. He gives the Christian who's in sin hope in verse 10, the way he did in verse 6. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and the promise is God will exalt you. He will lift you up. So he doesn't just condemn them and leave them in their sin. He exposes their sin and then gives them hope because God is the God of the second chance, the third chance, the infinite chance for His children, always offering forgiveness of sin, always wooing His people, always calling sinners to Himself, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and at the same time a God of holiness and a God of wrath. But He ends with giving His people hope regarding this problem. So He gives an odd, honest, objective diagnosis of what was going on in their churches and the heart of the matter was they were being self-centered. Uh, he uses the word, the Greek word is hedonism uh, in verse 1 and verse 3. And hedonism, that was just self-pleasure. That's how we defined worldliness last week. Worldliness, at the, the essence and the heart of worldliness is being self-centered. Seeking to fulfill self in every conceivable manner. The very opposite of being other-oriented. Thinking of others. Thinking of God. It's all about self. Consumed with self. That's the definition of worldliness, and that's what they were struggling with. And when you're always thinking about your own agenda and what you want and what you like, and then you have to live in proximity with other people, you have a war, you have a clash, you have division because you've got the battle of the agendas, don't you? This happens in marriage. It happens between children and their parents. This happens at work among colleagues. This happens in the church. This happens in any organization where you have people clashing, clashing and colliding together with their own self-centered agendas. It never works. That is the issue, and that's what he's trying to address. So they are filled with pride. They are self-centered, driven by pride, what they want, what they're going to get out of it. And so he has to smash that wrong, sinful attitude with the greatest antidote, and that is humility, which is the very opposite of their prideful, self-centered attitudes. And so that's why verses 7 through 10, I just summarized it for you with three points there, and it all is around humility. How do you deal with division, self-centered division in the church and people fighting with each other and people who are just consumed with self? You counteract it with helping them understand what true humility is. Because it's the very opposite of being self-centered and prideful. And that's what this passage is. That's what James says the remedy is. Quit being self-centered, quit fighting, quit seeking your own agenda. Rather, be humble with true humility. That's verses 7 to 10. So I broke it up into three uh, points there. So let's go ahead and look at those. And I just called it the marks of true humility. One pastor said, or actually probably many have said it, the greatest virtue or mark of mature Christianity is humility. And I, I would tend to agree with that. Humility. If you really know what it is. The greatest mark and virtue of true Christianity is humility. 
And if that's true and you're a Christian, then the greatest thing that you would want to desire in your life is true humility. I, I have a friend who said he was working on a trilogy of books, three of them. The first one was called uh, Humility and How I Attained It. And then, uh, I can't remember the other two, but anyway, he's like, dude, you don't, you don't get it. It's the very opposite of humility. But So let's go ahead and look at uh, what the marks of true humility are. Just a snapshot. It's not exhaustive, but it's very helpful. And it, it cuts to the chase and gets them right where they are. And he's talking to believers, by the way. These are Christians struggling with sin. Now, that doesn't mean that every person in the church he was talking to struggled with this problem, but the message is specific enough that we know he was dealing with a real situation in time 2,000 years ago that he specifically knew about, and there were people involved that he knew of. He heard a report. There was firsthand witness. It needed to be addressed and exposed and dealt with. So he's being faithful as a shepherd. So point number one is verse 7 and 8. I'm trying to get these people to... Get focus off self and on others around them and most of all on God. And it takes true humility. Well, how do you get and attain true humility in your life when you're naturally a self-centered person? Actually, you know what? We are all by nature self-centered people. It's just the way we are in terms of our sinful bent. But with God's help, we can reverse that and address that and try to control it and rein it in. Um... Point number one, verses seven and eight there, first part of it, is that true humility requires godly submission. So how do you want to deal with pride in your life? Uh, how do you want to deal with division in your home, division in the church? Then you've got to gain humility, and it starts by submitting to God. It starts with an attitude towards God, evaluating yourself and thinking, what is my attitude towards God? He's the most important person in the world. How am I treating him? And it needs to be an attitude of, Submission. By the way, specifically and literally, the word humility. By the way, it's interesting. The Greek word for humility that's all over in the New Testament. Uh, the Greek language was also used by uh, centuries of Greeks before the New Testament writers. And they didn't even really have a word for humility in their Greek uh, language. So the pagan Greeks didn't really have a word for humility because they didn't believe in it. Because they were driven by flaunting themselves. So the New Testament really defines and creates this word called humility and adds it to the vocabulary of humanity that actually at one time came out of the Old Testament but was unknown to the pagan Greeks. But in the New Testament, the Greek word for humility means lowliness of mind. Literally, to think lowly of yourself. The opposite of having an inflated view of self. That's humility. And it's thinking lowly of yourself according to truth. Because it's got to be coinciding with truth, thinking lowly of yourself. In other words, you're not greater than everybody else. You have a realistic view of self from God's point of view. That's important. Someone who is not humble. Well, let's see, I think of uh, one of the greatest athletes in the 20th century, Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer in the 1960s and 70s. And he redefined pride because he'd always call himself, I am the greatest he said it all the time about himself and he just boasted about himself continuously and he kind of you know was comedic about it and people thought it was funny and it was entertaining and created a story and ever since then just about every famous athlete with very few exceptions think it's okay to talk about yourself as being the greatest just like Muhammad Ali did because he glamorized it and dignified just utter pride about self I am the greatest I am the greatest no no you're not 
God is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. An honest evaluation of self is we are sinful. We are weak. We are fallen. We are in need of help in God's grace. That's the epitome of pride and the opposite of humility. When you flaunt yourself and elevate yourself up like that. True humility requires godly submission. That's where it begins is looking at God for who God is. And immediately the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of God deflates who we are as we look at ourselves because then we see ourselves for who we truly are in the face of a holy God. Just like Moses before the burning bush where God was talking to him. And Moses was before literally the presence of God. And Moses was overwhelmed with humility because his true nature was exposed before his eyes as he looked on the glory of Almighty God. And so that's why God told him to take off his shoes. He stands on holy ground. And Moses was recognized as one of the most humble men alive in the Old Testament. He had a proper view of self because he had a proper view of how glorious God was. And he saw his own sin in the reflection of the glory of God. So true humility requires godly submission. So let's go ahead and look there. Verses 7 and 8. It's kind of interesting. Verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4. They have, there's ten indicatives or those are just declarative statements about truth. In other words, boy, here's what's going on. Here's the problem. Here's why the problem is happening. Here's the origin and the source of the problem. And then in 7 to 10, the three, four verses we're looking at right now has ten imperatives just from 7 to 10. An imperative is a command. It is a divine command from God to the Christian that we are obligated to obey. We are getting pummeled in this passage. Seven through ten. ten commands. Verses 1 through 6, here's what you're doing and here's what's wrong. And then 7 through 10 is, here's how you need to fix it. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Stop doing this. Do this, do this, do this. That's why I said, James is acting like a fiery prophet right now. You need to get right with God. And there's an urgency of it because all ten imperatives are what is in called the aorist tense. The aorist imperative. And the aorist tense in Greek speaks of this urgency and also this finality and this immediacy to get it done. No hesitation. Immediate, complete, final obedience before God. That's what's going on here. So as we go through, keep that in mind, is, is just these machine gun-like commands from God to obey, to deal with this prideful attitude. And it begins with submitting to God. And so just in verses 7 to 8, we've got one, two, three Commands. So let's look at those commands. The first one is, therefore, you want to be humble, you want to be uh, a unified person and not be divisive and not undermine God's church, then it needs to be starting with submitting to God. Submit, therefore, to God, says verse 7. The word submit is a command. It is a military term. It's a compound word. It means to get in line and get under the proper authority. It's a military term. And the military, the military, they know their rank. They know their place. They know how to submit to authority. And this specific word is talking about a will, willful submission to God as the authority in your life. And if you're a Christian, that should come easy, shouldn't it? That's what you should want and honor and desire. And it's hard and you need His help. But it should be a desire that comes from our heart as believers, born again, children of God. God, I desire, I want to be, it's so hard, but I want to be submissive to You and yield to You in all things. And God, I need Your help. But it starts with an attitude. An attitude of the right priorities. An attitude of being willing to submit to God in all things. Submitting to God and His commands from Scripture. Submit to God. That's where it starts. That's how you deal with pride in your own life. Submit, therefore, to God. That's the first command. Well, what does it mean to submit to God? Here's a great illustration. And here's a living definition. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. 
This is one of the best illustrations of what it means to submit to God. Jesus said it in Luke 9. It is startling. Jesus said this, talking to his disciples. uh, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anybody wants to come after me, Jesus, if anybody wants to be a believer of Jesus, if anybody wants to be a Christian, to be saved, to be rescued from their sin, from death, from hell, the devil, here is what you need to do. Here's where it starts. That's what he's talking about. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Deny. That's where submission to God starts. It is denying self. Your agenda isn't first. What you want is not first. It's all what God wants. That's submission to God. Jesus said, deny yourself. Which is actually the exact opposite of what the world says today, To it, right? Go out and get it. Fulfill yourself. Satisfy yourself. Love yourself. So it's the exact opposite of what the world would tell us. That's why it was so startling and shocking. This is totally against human nature to do this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Get this. Take up his cross. Be willing to die. That's what that means. To be willing to be crucified. Daily and follow me. That's a great definition of submission to God because Jesus is God. Jesus was God in a body. So to submit to God is to deny self. And all that that means, he goes on in verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life. Man, do you want to save your life? I want to save my life. I don't want to die. I don't want to die in my sin. I want fulfillment in life. Well, Jesus said, well, here's how you do it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You need to be willing to lose your life to save it. You lose it to God. Okay, God, my life is yours. You are in charge. You're the boss. You're my master. Help me to do whatever you want me to do, not what I want to do. Your will be done, not mine. That's what he's saying. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? Doesn't matter how rich you are and how much you accumulate in this life and amass power and authority and riches. You don't know God if you don't submit to Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 25, you will lose it and forfeit it all. So from Jesus' own mouth, here's a great definition of what it means to submit to God. So, and you begin submitting to God and asking for His help and saying that in prayer and talking to Him person to person, He will begin to soften your heart and He'll actually answer this prayer. And He'll allow you to become more and more of a humble person. This is the road to humility. The road up to exaltation is the road down in the valley of humility. Well, what else do we need to do to become humble and submissive? Well, related to that is resisting the devil. That's the second part of verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's kind of interesting. Why in the world? you got verse 7, submit to God. And then he says, resist the devil. And then verse 8, draw near to God. So right in between submit to God, draw near to God, you've got the devil right in the middle. Well, why is that? Well, because that's a reality. The devil is real. He is not fictitious. He's a personal being. He was created as an angel good by God in the beginning. And this angel who had the ability to make decisions and choose chose to sin against God because of his pride and was cursed by God and has been called the devil ever since. He is real. He is powerful. He's supernatural. He is invisible. He is hateful. He will never be redeemed. He's all over Scripture. Jesus talked about him. He is a person. He doesn't have a body. He is a spirit. He's not infinite. He is finite. God controls him. He can do nothing beyond what God will allow or permit. He hates Christians. He hates Jesus. He hates the Bible. He hates you if you love God. 
And he is on the prowl right now. They're in the unseen world that we cannot see. The devil never sleeps. He never slumbers. He is vicious. He is wicked. He is out to destroy lives. And there are three main ways that the devil operates. And so that's why the devil is related in close proximity to submitting to God and drawing near to God because our arch enemy, the devil, doesn't want you to submit to God. He doesn't want you to draw near to God. He doesn't want you to be humble. He wants you to be divisive. He doesn't want you to honor God and obey God. And so he's out to undermine everything God wants you to do. And that's why the devil is right in the middle of these two commands about your attitude towards God. When you want to grow in humility and you want to be a less self-centered person, at some point you need to think that the devil is on the prowl, he is real, and he's trying to undermine everything I do. From a spiritual, supernatural point of view, I need to be on guard. So that's why it says resist the devil. Submit to God, but boy, man, when you try to submit to God, you've got somebody who's coming after you. They're going, to, they're going to try to make your job difficult of submitting to God, and his name is the devil. And if you, do, if you search the wiles of the devil and the way he operates from Genesis to Revelation, the way he operates is very simple and it is always the same. He is crafty, he is wise, he is creative, but at the same time, he is very simplistic because his ways and methodologies never change of how he tries to undermine believers. And really, he, he does three things. These are the three D's of the devil. The devil operates in 3D. He always tries to get the believer to doubt. And that is to doubt God's Word. He started in Genesis 3 with Eve. He did it in Matthew chapter 3 with Jesus. He's doing it with you and me all the time. Always trying to create doubt with respect to God's Word. What else does he do? The other D is he tries to deceive us. He, that's one of his names. The deceiver. He tries to distort the truth in our mind. Make it kind of foggy, kind of hazy. And it's interesting how he does it. He always takes religious truth and biblical truth and tweaks it just a bit with a tiny nuance just to get you off one degree so that in 200 miles you're way off course. He operates as a religious deceiver. So he tries to create doubt in God's Word. Then he is a deceiver. And he's always playing with our mind. Tweaking the truth. That's why Philippians 4 says, think on true things. Continue, because Satan's always trying to get us to think on that which is not quite true. It's 99% true and there's 1%. It's been poisoned. So he tries to create doubt. He tries to deceive. This is believers. With unbelievers, he's trying to destroy. But the third one for believers, after creating doubt, creating deception, is he wants to create division. Those are the three D's of what Satan does in the church with believers. Read every single New Testament epistle written by the apostles James and Jude. And one of the main, the main problem in the churches was the division among the believers. And James is attributing this division ultimately to the wiles and the tactics and the strategies of Satan himself. When you are being a divisive Christian, do you know you're just being a a puppet and a marionette, or a puppet and a pawn of Satan himself. Because Satan is happy when there is division in the church. If you are a divisive person at home, if you are a divisive person uh, as a child to your parents, if you're a divisive person in your marriage, if you're a divisive person at the church, uh, you're an immature Christian if you're a Christian. And Satan is going to use your division for his good and his glory. Why would a Christian want that? 
So that's why James is coming down hard. People, you need to have a supernatural uh, perspective and see the big picture here. Satan is at work behind the scenes as he's destroying your church through division. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, you need to pray every single day against the evil one. You need to pray against the devil. God, protect me from Satan. Expose his works so I can clearly see it. So submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, how do you resist the devil? Well, that's a big question. Uh, that's like a six-week series and another set of sermons, but just maybe I can just summarize it real quick. Because a lot of books have been written about how to resist the devil, how Christians should resist the devil. First, first tell you, let me tell you what it is not. How you don't resist the devil when he's on the attack as a Christian. And actually, all of these ideas have books written to support their views, and I don't agree with these. Uh, Resisting the devil is not through isolation. You know, some people will, you know, become a monk and go hide in a cave and meditate and pray because they're trying to run from the devil. Ain't going to work. He's invisible. He's after you. So isolation doesn't work. As a matter of fact, uh, the proverb says, he who isolates himself is a fool. It is not good for the man to be alone. You're just inviting the works of the devil if you isolate yourselves. Uh, fighting the devil is not a mystical thing. Uh, it's not uh, a charismatic thing. What I mean by that is... In a certain religious Christian community, sometimes they'll tell you to fight the devil, you've got to talk to the devil. And it would be typical sometimes that they would actually be praying, Dear God, and they're talking to God in prayer, and then all of a sudden they start talking to the devil. And devil, I resist you. You need to flee. And you're like, wow, they're saying a prayer to God, and yet they're talking to the devil, which means they're praying to the devil. So here's some advice. Don't pray the devil in your prayers. When you are talking to God, it's a private conversation between you and the God of the universe, and don't let anybody else in, even Satan himself. There's no example of any believer in the history of the world praying to the devil during their prayers. Do not pray to Satan in your prayers. Pray to God and God alone. Uh, resisting the devil is not physical either, because he's not a physical being. Uh, Ephesians 6 says that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He is invisible. He's up in the heavenlies. That means the spiritual invisible realms that we cannot see. Satan is real. He prowls around like a roaring lion. He has agents and demons who work for him, according to Ephesians 6. But it's spiritual. We do not fight against flesh and blood, said Paul. But in the spiritual realm, where only God has the solution. God is a spiritual being. We must use God's spiritual resources to fight a spiritual being. Satan is not a physical being. He can incarnate things like a snake or a pig or a human being, but Satan himself, he is not a physical being. He does not have flesh and blood. He's spiritual, and therefore our battle against Satan is not physical. So we, it's not into uh, laborious exorcisms. You don't find that in the Bible that go on for hours and days. It's not asceticism where you uh, whip yourself and beat yourself as though you're punishing the devil. Uh, it's not celibacy. You don't go celibate to fight against the devil because you're fighting physical urges. It's not physical. It's not using a cross, a shiny silver cross, and trying to blind Satan wherever you are. It's not physical. He won't be blinded, but it's not splashing holy water on him wherever he is. The, the battle is not spiritual. Paul said it. We don't fight against flesh and blood. Also, fighting against the devil is not a passive pietistic thing where you just kind of sit back and let God. Because the command here is resist the devil. Active voice, that means something we do. We engage in it. We practice something. It's our effort. It's uh, our volition. We're responsible for it. It's something we do actively. It's also fighting against the devil is not some esoteric secret thing where only a few people actually have the answers of how to do it and you need to pay them money to get the answers so you can fight against Satan. 
The answer is all over the Bible. Well, what is the answer? Um, well, I just want to read two passages real quick because this is really important of how to resist the devil. And that would be 1 Peter 5 and Ephesians 6, uh, which are actually kind of parallel passages. And they say basically the same thing about how to have success in resisting the devil, who is real, and how to fight him. And it's actually going to be simpler than you would think. It's a little surprising. Ephesians 6 first. The end of his epistle, he says, uh, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's where it's, you want to fight against the devil, then be strong in your relationship with God. If you want to be fight against the devil and resist his wiles, then be strong in your relationship and your walk with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, if you are not a Christian, you don't know God personally, then you are susceptible to being destroyed and manipulated by Satan. So it starts with a strong walk with God. That's where it begins to resist the devil. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of God's might. Put on the full armor of God. So he's being metaphorical here, but he's talking about spiritual disciplines that you implement in your life that will help you resist Satan's temptations and his attacks. The full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand firm against, get this, the schemes of the devil. He's a schemer. We need to put on the full armor. Well, what's the full armor? Well, here it is. He gets real specific. Here's what you need to do. Uh, but with this reminder first, verse 12, for our struggle, our spirit, our struggle against Satan is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the powers. These are kinds of angels, by the way, a hierarchy of demons, I should say. Our struggle actually is against Satan and his minions, rulers, against the powers, against the world of forces of this satanic darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies, in the spiritual invisible realm. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Well, what's the armor I put on? Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. There it is. You start there with truth. What did I say one of the tactics of Satan was? It was to deceive, right? Deceive. That's when you're not thinking about truth properly. And that's why he says you want to fight the devil, then gird yourself with truth. And where does that come from? Well, the Word of God is truth. Scripture is truth. And Jesus said, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You need to know God's Word. You need to take in the Scripture. You need to be exposed to it. You need to understand it. And then you need to apply it. So there's got to be an ongoing intake of the truth of the Bible and the Word of God to help you preserve truth in your mind because Satan always, first and foremost, is trying to attack our mind, attack our thought life. That's what he's doing. So, gird yourself with truth. And then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. And having shod your uh, feet with... And that's right living, by the way. Righteousness is right living according to the Bible. If you're living in sin against what the Bible says, then you are susceptible to the wiles of the devil. Uh, what else do we need to do? Uh, shod your feet like a soldier with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is good news that comes from Scripture. Again, this is biblical truth. And this is emphasizing biblical truth that preserves peace, that fights against the devil, because one of the wiles of the devil is he wants to attack uh, our peace, our harmony, and our unity and create division. And as a result, we're supposed to preserve peace. Preserve truth. Preserve peace. He goes on, verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. Remember, Satan wants to create doubt. Satan wants you as a Christian to doubt God's Word. Oh, well, the Bible doesn't really say that. Or the biblical author didn't really mean that. Or that's what it says, but that's not what it means. 
See, he's creating doubt. That's how Satan operates. And so Paul says, no, we need to take up the shield of faith so that you are not doubting God's word. And the only way you get faith to believe in God's word is to be in God's word because all true faith comes from reading God's word. Faith comes by hearing the word about Christ with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So uh, we'll stop there in Ephesians. You can just read 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and following. It says the same thing. In other words, how do you fight the devil? You need to regularly be in taking the truth of the Word of God as found in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit of God, who is the teacher of truth, will protect you with biblical truth in all ways so that you are wise to the ways of the deceptions of Satan, And as a result, you'll be able to successfully resist the devil. Go back to James 4. Submit to God. Resist the devil. By the way, if you do resist the devil by submitting to God and living by biblical truth and saying no to sin, then the devil will resist you. I mean, he will flee from you. He'll say, oh man, I, I give up on that Christian. They're too obedient. They love God's Word too much. I'm out of here. I'll go find somebody else that's weaker. And then uh, the third command he gives us there, point number one, Submit, resist, and then he says, draw near. You want to be humble? You need to draw near to God. Draw near to God. By the way, the terminology there, draw near, is, comes right out of the Old Testament where Levitical priests, when they approached God in the temple and in the holy place, they went toward God. They got close to God in the holy place. They drew near to God always with a sacrifice, whether it was a blood sacrifice, because they were sinners. And the sacrifice was an expression of repentance. I am going before a holy God. I recognize that I am a sinner. And so that's exactly what this terminology is saying. Draw near to God. Come close to God as the Holy One. And when you come to Him, come humbly recognizing your own sin with a broken heart. An honest evaluation of self. Draw near to God as a broken, humble sinner in need asking for God's help. Again, it's active. We take the initiative. We draw near to God. These people that James is writing to, they have been drawn away from God because they were serving self, and so they have to turn around from serving self and now go towards God. And the promise is, if we humble ourselves, confess our sin, draw near to God in prayer, talking to Him, submission to Him, that He will draw near to us. And if, you know, it's a beautiful picture. You start drawing near to God, He's going to draw near to you, and guess where you meet? Right in the middle. As a sinner, you draw near to God. He draws near to you. You meet in the middle. And that is the imagery of Luke 15 of the prodigal son who left his father, lived a life of sin, was convicted by sin, quote, came to his senses. Beautiful phrase. When any sinner is softened and finally sees the light and is convicted of their sins, they come to their senses. And then the prodigal son said, I will go to my father and ask for his forgiveness. And it's literally the prodigal son began to go. He was drawing near to his father. And then the father of the son in the passage, it says that he could see his son coming from a distance, returning. And it says the father ran to meet him and embraced him. That is a living illustration of this truth. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you as a sinner. He will open his arms. His grace is abundant. He will receive you and forgive you and renew you and restore you. That is the God of God of grace. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And that's where humility starts. True humility requires godly submission. Let's go on to point number two, and that's verses 8 and 9. And that's true humility requires personal contrition. Contrition is just another word for confession of sin, being sorry and broken over sin in your own life. 
where you ask God to forgive you and cleanse you and help you? That's contrition. So if you want to be humble and be right with God, you've got to have an honest evaluation of self regarding the sin in your own life. That's why second part of verse 8, James tells his readers, wow, he pummels them with several commands here. Cleanse, purify, be miserable, mourn, weep, and turn. That's a lot of commands, isn't it? Those are all expressions of what true repentance looks like. Somebody says, I'm sorry. Okay. Don't doubt them, believe them. But then just looking for, start looking for all these imperatives in their life that may manifest themselves. The fruits of repentance, in the words of John the Baptist, to the Pharisees. Are they cleansing their hands? Are they purifying their hearts? Are they being miserable, mourning, weeping, and turning from their ways? Those are fruits of true repentance. Well, let's look at those specifically. These commands. Uh, first of all, it says, okay, you guys, man, you are divisive, you're sinful, you're self-centered, you're proud, you're creating division, you need to repent, draw near to God, and specifically, you need to do something about yourself too. You've got an attitude towards God, but there's an attitude towards self, and it starts with verse 8 where it says, cleanse your hands. It talks about your actions. Your actions have been sinful. Hands represent actions in the Bible. Give all of your actions to God. That's what he's saying. Cleanse your hands. You sinners. Wow, he's calling Christians sinners? Are these unbelievers or believers? Well, these are Christians. Because at the beginning of the book, he said he's writing to Christians. He keeps calling them my brethren. These are Christians. You mean you can call Christians sinners? Yes. They've been forgiven all of their sin by believing in Jesus, His death and His resurrection, and asking for forgiveness. So legally, before God, they are totally forgiven. Practically in this life, while they live in this life, with sin living in them until they're redeemed in the future, they will act like sinners. Because they have to battle sin in their own heart and life. So yeah, he can call them sinners because they are. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. You're either a saved sinner or an unsaved sinner. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So your actions, put them before God. Then he says, purify your hearts. That's on the inside. Hands is outside. External. What you do, purify your hearts. That's on the inside. Your attitude, your thought life. You need to clean up your thought life. You need to change your attitude. And that's where it starts. Boy, if you want to change your actions, you've got to start with the, the heart on the inside, don't we? So he's dressing all of humanity, all of our humanity, everything about us, our actions, our hands. And he says, purify your hearts on the inside. And then he calls them you double-minded, literally double-souled. In other words, these Christians, they wanted it both ways. I want to tinker with the world and, yeah, I want to please God, but I want the pleasure of the world. Yeah, but I want to be a Christian. Yeah, and I know it's wrong, but I enjoy it. That's double-minded. Christians are double-minded. There's only two times in the New Testament that term is used, double-minded. It's in the book of James. It's talking to Christians. Unbelievers are not double-minded. Did you know that? They are single-minded with respect to God and sin. They're going one way, the way of the world. Christians are the only ones that are double-minded in this sense. James made this word up, by the way. You can't find it anywhere else. He made this word up. He invented this word to talk about these Christians. You're being, you want it both ways. Don't do that. You can't have it both ways. Jesus said you can only serve one master, right? You can't serve God and anything else. It's just God and God alone. So God wants your actions. God wants your attitude or your thought life. Don't be double-minded. And then what else does God want? God wants our words. So that's verse 9. He wants our actions, our thoughts, and our words. That's everything that constitutes a human being. This is full, complete, total, comprehensive repentance. That's what God wants. Verse 9, be miserable, mourn, and weep. This is all outward, tangible expressions that come out of our mouth, reflecting of what's going on in our heart. 
True repentance will always result in a manifestation of what's going on physically. People will, verse 9, miserable. That's literally be wretched on the inside. You recognize your sin. It is wretched and despicable before God. Amazing grace, how sweet it is. And then that phrase that says, that saved a wretch like me. Some people have a hard time saying that. I'm not a wretch. Well, yeah, you are and so am I. Because it says right here. Recognize your sin. It is wretched before God. So literally, that's what it means. Be wretched. Recognize it on the inside. And when you recognize it on the inside, then there should be a shame and a mourning over our sin as it offends a holy God. And we should weep over our sin, be highly distressed over our sin whenever we find it and it's exposed and we are convicted. And he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And the word laughter here, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And he's talking about a specific instance where these Christians who are in sin and compromising and creating division and seeking the world and their own pleasures, they had a cavalier, flippant, lighthearted, ha-ha attitude about it. That's what he's talking about. This is a specific instance. He's not saying Christians should never laugh. Christians should never clap in church. He's not saying that. Because the Psalms say, you can clap. He's talking about in this instance, I don't like your flippant attitude regarding your sin. It is so dismissive. And you're obviously not repentant. You're not even recognizing your own sin. That's horrible. So he wants true fruit of repentance. This is worldly laughter. This is not true joy that comes from God. This is short, temporary laughter that comes with a short season of indulging in sin. It doesn't last. And it doesn't fulfill so that's true repentance. We need to have true contrition in our life. And this is in keeping with what Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn. And that's literally over their sin. For they shall be comforted. God responds to the repentant sinner every single time. And then finally, number three about true humility. Submitting to God. Having personal contrition over sin. And then finally, verse 10, true humility results in a high position. See, this is again, he concludes with the good news. So for the second time in a row, I won't spoil your lunch because it's good news that we end on. What you're doing is disastrous, divisive, self-centered, destructive. You're playing right in the hands of Satan himself as he seeks to destroy the church. Knock it off. That is sinful. It is wicked. Draw near to God. Submit to him. Resist the devil. Mourn over your sin. Recognize it. Come to God. Change your life. Verse 10. And another, this is a summary statement. 7 and 10 actually go together because they pretty much say the same thing in two different ways. Submit to God. And now in verse 10 he says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Submit to God. Humble yourself. Speak lowly of yourself or think lowly of yourself accurately before Almighty God because that's what they needed to do. They were proud. They were thinking highly of themselves. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Just two comments about what it means to humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. It is to think lowly of yourself according to truth. And the reason I say that is because there, there is a false humility that people do all the time. And you say it out loud. Oh, nobody likes me. Oh, I'm... And what, what are you doing? You really want sympathy from people because you want them to come over and say something good and nice to you. Because you want them to pat you on the back. It's actually the opposite of true humility. So there is a false humility. That's why it's thinking lowly of yourself according to God, according to reality. But another thing about this verse on 10, humble yourselves. Notice this is a command. This is something we do. 
This phrase, humble yourselves, comes right out of the Old Testament, is repeated many times in the Old Testament where God is calling His people to humble themselves. I think of that great passage in Chronicles chapter 7 where God says, if my people humble themselves and pray. Notice He's not... This is God is asking us to humble ourselves before Him. This is not a prayer saying, God, humble me. I'm not talking to God asking Him to humble me. This is God talking to us, asking us to humble ourselves. This is something we do. It is an act of the will. It's in the reflexive voice or the middle voice, meaning it's something we do ourselves. Of course, with God's help, that's understood as Christians, His grace, His Spirit, in response to Him, but we must humble ourselves. It's something we're responsible for. We're accountable for it. We do it in the presence of God. An honest appraisal of ourselves. And here's the promise at the end of verse 10. If you truly humble yourself before God in an honest manner, especially regarding your own sin and your status before an almighty holy God, if you do that, then God will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will raise you up. First Peter 5 says the same thing. And He will begin to raise you up in this life. When you confess to Him over sin and ask for His forgiveness, He'll raise you up out of the pit and comfort you, restore you, free your conscience. By the way, in verse 9, when it says be miserable, you know what that literally means? It means feel guilty with an exclamation point. That is the exact opposite of what the world would tell us. Guilt is a good thing. Because guilt is a warning sign. You've violated a holy God. And so when you go and humble yourself before God, He can relieve and alleviate your guilt through forgiveness of sin. Guilt, guilt is, if guilt is not dealt with accurately, it is a horrible thing. It will destroy a person through depression and all kinds of things. You've got to deal with your guilt. Recognize your guilt. Lay it before God. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. If you do, He will exalt you. He will raise you up. He will restore your joy. He'll give you peace of mind. He'll relieve your guilt. And then there's future ways that He will exalt you in the life to come when Jesus returns. Invites you into His, your, his family. Makes you and me perfect to reign with Him forever. Talk about exaltation. That is the great promise of the Christian. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. With that, uh, I want to close this sermon by reading Luke. If you want to turn there, Luke 18. Not really going to come at it. I'm just going to read it. This was a story that Jesus told, called a parable. It could have been based on somebody, people that Jesus actually knew. Very likely, this was a true scenario that happened at some point, and it's really just trying to teach one truth, a spiritual truth. And Jesus is comparing two people: a very proud, arrogant, self-sufficient prideful religious Pharisee who was a master of the Bible and memorized the entire Old Testament and thought he was all and didn't need any forgiveness in life. He's comparing the Pharisee who was at the temple, ran the temple, taught at the temple. Mr. He had an S on his shirt. Super spiritual. So that's the Pharisee. And he's comparing it with a sinner. Just some pathetic, lowly, convicted sinner. And here's what Jesus said. He's talking about true spirituality. Uh, Luke 18, starting at verse 9, And Jesus also told this story or this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Here, there were a whole bunch of arrogant, prideful, self-centered uh, Pharisees that were trying to make Jesus look foolish publicly. And so Jesus told them this story to teach them and also to shatter their pride. So Jesus told this story uh, to some people who trusted in themselves. They were self-sufficient. They were pride. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were thought they were perfect before God. And they viewed others with contempt as they looked down their nose at those sinful, wretched people who were unworthy 
And Jesus says in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, he's the proud guy. The other, a tax collector. He's the lowly guy. Verse 10, or verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. Wow. Not praying to God. He's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector over here. So he was not asking for forgiveness of sin. This is the epitome of pride. Verse 12, here's all the cool religious things I do. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. It was over and above what was required in the Mosaic Law, by the way. Bragging on himself to himself as he prays to God out in public. Verse 13, but, huge contrast, don't be like that guy. Jesus says, be like this guy. Because this is true spirituality. What guy? Well, the tax collector. They were despised people. But this guy was convicted of a sin. He saw the light. He came to his senses. He comes before God. And he wants to repent with true contrition, true submission, so that God might exalt him as he abases himself. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, not as close to the temple, he fears God was even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed of his own sin. But was beating his breast, mourning, weeping, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. That's it. Convicted, brokenhearted before a holy God. 14, Jesus said, I tell you, this is true. I tell you, this man, the repentant sinner, went home justified. He went home saved. He went home totally forgiven of all of his sin. Past, present, future. His legal status before God was perfect, pristine. Notice he didn't do anything religious to get it either. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. Simply recognized who he was as a despicable sinner before holy God and cried out for mercy. That's how you become a Christian. I tell you the truth, this man went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. God, help us to recognize our sin, to humble ourselves before you, that you might exalt and lift us up according to your promise. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your Again, for your word, the book of James, for the opportunity for the believers to get together in this beautiful assembly that you call the church, your precious bride, meeting locally all over the world today to lift up your name, to search your truth, to encourage one another, to be exposed for who we really are before you. And God, thank you for your abounding grace and your continual mercy to us as a sinful people. God, help us to be sensitive to Your Spirit when He convicts us that we might be humbled before You and receive the promise that You gave us that we also might be lifted up. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBF sv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.